I'm back. <laughs> it's been a while since I've been up here again. I think last time it was like May of last year. I didn't think it'd take a year for me to get back up here because I really enjoyed it the first time I did it. And it always appears more scary and difficult than it actually is. I think it's just more of the anticipation of getting up here that kind of gets to you. But I think it's the hardest things to get yourself to do, which are the best things for you to do. So often people miss out on great opportunities because of fear and the tendency to procrastinate. And while I have an opportunity, I kind of wanted to encourage some of the rest of our youth to get up here sometime and talk because we all go through different experiences. And some people might not be able to explain them as well as others because they've gone through them themselves. So, and like I said, it's not nearly as scary as you think it is. <laughs> um, I've actually found the experience to be very gratifying because you really feel like you've done something for God and you're able to share your experiences with others. And if you're looking for a sign to do it, I'm your sign. <laughs> Go do it. I encourage it. But pardon my brief spiel. Uh, the title of my sermon devotion thing is going to be Lay Your Isaac Down. And it's a metaphor of sorts that I'm sure a lot of people have heard of. Um, but another word that people should be familiar with is the word temptation, as it's something that no one is free from. Every day has its own share of struggles and wrestling matches with it, both old and new. Some temptations are pretty easy to ignore for the most part, while others tend to cause us to stumble. And I know I'm not the only person who's found themselves in the aftermath of giving into a temptation, sitting and wondering why on earth I would go through with something that I knew was wrong. There have been things that I've wrestled with for years and thought I'd finally overcome only to come back around and repeat the silly mistake that I ended up making in the first place. And I would look up to God asking about this problem. I'd be like, I thought I'd surrendered this. I thought we were done. I thought you had finally taken this from me. Why am I still back here? But I've also struggled with obedience to the fullest before. Like, my way was getting in the way of God's way. And if there's one thing I've come to be reminded of lately, it's that there can be a few things that factor into this failure. And I've narrowed them down to three points, which I've noticed is kind of like the magic number for sermons, so I went with three. <laughs> um, and I'd like to start off with the Bible story recaps, because we all love our Bible stories. So if you would, if you want to follow along, you can turn your Bibles to Genesis, the 19th chapter. And it's a story that I think everyone's heard before. And it displays great lessons about God's love, grace, and wrath, about men's shortcomings in regards to sin and obedience. Well, I probably shouldn't say everyone's heard of it because I met this girl at school and others like her who, they, they claim to be Christian and, you know, they, they talk about how they, you know, walk with God and stuff. But I think that fruits kind of go to show someone's walk better than what they say because you can say anything you want really. But um, she said her family had been going to church for a long time, I believe, and I, I guess that makes sense. But where was I? Sorry, I lost my place for a second. <laughs> I can't be the judge of one's faith, but whenever I talked to her about God, it kind of just seemed to be like a joke to her. I don't, I don't want to go judging her walk or anything, but she just seemed to, like, associate with people that were in, like, the LGBT community and kind of even claimed to be part of that herself at one point. 
I didn't really find any fault in what they did. And she told me that she didn't understand how a loving God would, wouldn't let people love who they wanted. And so I asked her, have you heard of the story of Sodom and Gomorrah before? And she thought about it for a second, and she was like, no, I've never heard of that before. So I had to explain the whole thing before making my point about the sin of same-sex marriage. And I presented it with love and patience, I promise. It, that's really hard to do sometimes, but I tried. And in the end, she agreed to disagree, as most people tend to do. But it was kind of disappointing for me because it just showed that so many Christians who claim to be Christians know so little about the book of their faith. And it's like people would rather take their own acquired knowledge of God instead of looking to his own word to learn about him. And sometimes that greatly has to do with the failure of their own church. So I guess I can't assume every Christian knows their Bible stories. Anyways, uh, Genesis chapter 19, starting at verse 15, says, And when the morning arose, then the angel hastened Lot, saying, Arise. Take thy wife and your two daughters, which are here, lest thou be consumed in the iniquity of the city. And while he lingered, the men lay hold upon his hand, and upon the hand of his wife, and upon the hand of his two daughters, the Lord being merciful to them. And they brought him forth and set him without the city. I'd like to go back to something that was said in verse 16. Notice that Lot, he was lingering. He lingered. It appeared he had no desire to leave very quickly. Like the part about being consumed with the iniquity of the city or being told that the angels were going to destroy the place didn't mean anything. I like to imagine Lot being like, leave right now. Like, like right now. Okay, okay, cool. But like it's still morning and we just woke up and my wife has to do her makeup because she doesn't want to go out and people see her with her makeup or whatever because she's like that. And my daughters probably want to fix their own hair and stuff. It'll take a minute. It'll, it'll be all right. Right? I mean, we'll leave as soon as we can, but it's not so bad. I mean, so there's a few bad eggs in our city, but there are bad eggs everywhere. Why destroy a city over it? it that's like if some divinely sent men showed up to your door and, and you knew they, they were the real deal, so it wasn't weird or anything, and they said, hey, you and your family need to leave now. God's going to destroy your neighborhood because of their iniquity. And you were like, all right, I'll be back with you in a few minutes. Imagine being the angels while Lot was tearing around. They'd probably be like, can you believe this guy? But I don't know. I, I digress. I wanted to ask a question. Have you ever found yourself lingering? Even after God has given you clear instruction? Because I know I have. And for months, I asked to hear God speak to me clearly about something that I had struggled with. And I kept praying about it. I was like, God, is this what you want me to do? Is this what you want me to do? Are you sure? Because I'm doing this for you. Do you really want me to do it? Or do you really want me to stop doing it, I guess I should say? And I kind of started to realize after a while that I was just kind of stalling. Like God would change his mind or something if I stalled long enough. I knew what he wanted the whole time. I felt my conscience tugging me all the way. And I kind of just ignored it. I know I'm not the only one who's probably heard him speak more than I acknowledged. But I wondered why we did that. I think it's because we know what's right in our heart, but our flesh still desires for the sin we need to surrender. Which kind of leads to my second point. 
I'd like to rewind a little bit back to uh, that girl I knew from school. And I know a lot of people, maybe along with her, look to man's word for advice, either for someone else or from their own understanding over God's. We try to justify our own actions with man's advice instead of godly advice. If you're rationalizing something that you feel within your conscience you shouldn't do, sometimes you start to point fingers at other people too. You're like, well, this person I look up to at church listens to music with those words, and they're a Christian, so why would it hurt for me to listen to those things too? Or that person still does this and that, and I'm not wanting to do anything near as bad as what they're doing, so it'll, it'll be all right, right? I don't have to worry about it. I'm not nearly as bad as that. Don't do that. Don't even try to compare yourself to someone else's convictions because they're not always the same. If you're being convicted, there's a reason you are. So don't compare yourself to people like that. It's a waste of time. And I'm not going to say all that without kind of talking about the people that are used in these comparisons a lot of the time. A lot of confused Christians are influenced by Christians who do do questionable stuff. And I get it. People have different convictions, like I said, and that's perfectly valid. But what I mean is stuff that can kind of act as a stumbling block to justify other decisions. Sometimes we need to reevaluate some of the things we do without even really, the things that we do that we don't really give a passing thought to usually. Like, could what you're doing lead other Christians astray? Am I being a good example of what a Christian should be? Because, for example, I'm an older sister. And the things that I do and say and watch could influence my younger brother and one of these days my younger sister because she's not really old enough for me to influence her yet. And I've had to put that into consideration when making decisions before, asking myself, if I do this, could my brother or my friends or anyone really see it and justify their own actions with it? And if you have these convictions, even though you feel like you're unfazed and it doesn't bother you and it doesn't change your lifestyle, like, oh, I watch that, but that doesn't mean that I say the things I do or that I think about the things I do, it might be beneficial to think about that again. I watched this YouTube channel where this man answers questions that are sent in by viewers. And one of them asked a question about a show they watched about a game for a particular friend. Game of porn, I mean throne. And... I mean, it, it's basically porn. You really shouldn't watch it at all. But this person was talking about how they felt a conviction over the show that they had been watching, even though they watched the first two seasons prior to sending in the message. They said that they closed their eyes for the bad stuff and that it disgusts them, and they watch it solely for the world and the story, that sort of thing. They went on to say that they don't think it has any effect on them or their heart or their thoughts. But I really liked the guy's response because he said, if you're writing me a message, this has affected you. You're only writing about a problem that you're having. And if it didn't matter, you wouldn't be sending me a message. You're only doing it because of your own guilt, firstly, but also because you know you don't enjoy what's going on. You're lying. 1 Corinthians 3.18 says, Let no one deceive himself. If any among you thinks that he's wise in this age, let him become a fool, that he might become wise. And James 3, 14 through 17 says, If you have bitter envying and strife in your hearts, glory not and lie not against the truth. This wisdom descends not from above, but is earthly, sensual, and devilish. 
Where envying and strife is, there is confusion in every evil work. But the wisdom that is from above is first and pure, and then peaceable, gentle, and easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. Our own wisdom and judgments will be our own downfall. Because when we, re when we rely on what we know, that's the thing we don't know. We know what we want for ourselves, but we don't always know what's best for us. And so we have to rely on God because he is really the only source of truth in what is good for us. Moving on to my third point and back to the text. Um, going back to Genesis 19, verse 17, it says, And it came to pass when they had brought them forth abroad that he, the angel, said, Escape for your life, look not behind you. Neither stay you in all the plain, escape to the mountain, lest you be consumed. And then Lot continues to bargain with the angels, like, oh, let's go to this other place. And they're like, sure, whatever. But then in verse 24, it says, Then the Lord rained upon Sodom and upon Gomorrah brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the plain and all the inhabitants of the cities and that which grew upon the ground. But Lot's wife looked back from behind him, and she became a pillar of salt. Why would God allow such a fatal punishment to come upon her for simply looking back at her city? I think that we should ask a different question. Why did she look back despite the warning not to? I think the answer is pretty simple. She was running from Sodom physically, yes, but her heart was still back in that house where they'd left. You could be running from your own sin, desperately praying, God, take this from me. So why doesn't he? Let's blame God for a second. Why doesn't he take this from you if you've been asking and praying, begging for him to take it for you? And yet you're still here worrying about it. You're still here thinking about it. You're still there wanting it. That's what it is. You still want it. That's the problem. You're still moping around, sad that God would call you away from something that was bad for you. You're like Balaam. We all know the story of Balaam. Cool. I assume that's a yes. <laughs> when he was so sad that he couldn't curse King Balak's enemies and get the money from him because God said, those are my people you're trying to curse. The longer you dwell on those things, the bigger window of time is to let, the, win the, the bigger the window of time is for Satan to sneak in and whisper his devious and convincing points, the more likely you are to fail. God doesn't want you looking back when there's no time to look back. He has a whole new way of living ahead, and we're still stuck in the past. Instead of thinking about what you can't do, think about what you can do now that you're free. But that doesn't cross your mind in that moment because you're so sad because you're of the uncertainty of what if this thing, what if I can't live without this thing, even though it's probably something really silly and stupid when you look back like I did. And it doesn't really, it doesn't really cross your mind, but that's the trust they have to put in God. And these things, they might rear their ugly head at times in the future. I can't say that you'll never be tempted by it again because I know that I have. But remember the one that gave you strength the first time. The one that gave you strength to push through the first time. Because you can't do it in your own strength. You can try. But I can guarantee you won't be successful in the end. 
And I wouldn't want to present these bad examples of, you know, Lot and his wife without a good example. You don't have to turn there, but um, in chapter 22 of Genesis, there's another person, and I think it's interesting. Same family, but very different outcome when asked to do something by the Lord. Um, Lot's uncle Abraham, um, he did the right thing. Y'all know your Bible stories. Abraham had been praying for a son for years. Many, many years. Finally, little Isaac was given to him, as promised by God. But chapter 22 starts off, and it came to pass after these things that God did tempt Abraham and said unto him, Abraham, and he said, Behold, here I am. And he said, Take now thy son, thine only son, Isaac, who you love, and get you into the land of Moriah, and offer him there for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains, which I will tell of you. And Abraham rose up early in the morning and saddled his ass and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son and clave the wood for the burnt offering and rose up and went to the place which God had told him. I can guarantee you Abraham didn't understand it. He didn't want to do it. I mean, parents, would you be comfortable with plunging a dagger into your child? If you had sense, I'd say no. But Abraham knew God had spoken. He could have reasoned with himself, saying, no, no, there's no way God's telling me to do this. God would never tell me to do that. I'll, I'll wait another week, and if he says something again, then I'll go do it. He could have asked someone else's opinion on the matter, to which any normal person would say, are you out of your mind? What kind of crazy stuff are you up to? And convince him not to obey. <clears throat> he could have gone all the way, with the intention of never actually going through with it. Maybe along the way he hoped that God would change his mind. And even if he did, in reality, I don't think he was counting on it. He did the simplest yet hardest thing, that anyone could do in that situation. He listened and he obeyed. I have no doubt that Abraham was tempted in this situation, tempted not to do it, because sometimes that's what temptation does. Sometimes it's not always tempting you to do something. Sometimes it's tempting you to keep from doing something out of fear. And I mean, this was his promised son promised by the same God who now wanted Isaac back, any lesser man couldn't have done it. But Abraham had to prove that there was nothing between him and God. In our present lives, I think we often find ourselves in similar situations, though definitely more in the spiritual sense. I mean, I wouldn't expect most of our situations to be immediately life-threatening like that. At least I hope not. <laughs> But Sodom was a form of temptation. Today it's still used symbolically as sin and temptation. One might even say that Isaac was a form of temptation, as I said a little bit ago, though not directly stated in the scripture. You'd have to look at it through the eyes of Abraham, a father. Temptation can take on big forms, but also really small forms, because sometimes that's all it takes for Satan to get a little gap in your defense so that he can sneak in. Regardless of their size or what seems to be their significance, temptation only has one purpose, to make you fail at what God has planned for you. 
All temptation is tailored for each person, as what you struggle with may be super easy for me, and vice versa. Maybe what I struggle with might be really easy for you. Whatever it is, Satan can even get you to, if he can even get you to toy with an idea, you've already given him a foothold. All it takes is a little bit. If you don't deny it immediately, and you start going, oh, well, well, maybe. That's all it takes sometimes, is a few seconds of, well, maybe. We need to learn to deny it immediately. We need to learn to recognize it. And how do we learn to recognize God's voice? By reading his word. The things that hinder us may not always be things, either. Sometimes they can be mental. Thoughts and mindsets. Like, for me, the last few days, uh, I had been struggling with something. I had been really, really beating myself up because if you go on Instagram or if you go on um, YouTube and stuff like that and you follow different uh, Christians and stuff, you, you start to see that a lot of them talk about how, oh, I had a dream about this or I had this vision or they have like a message that God has given them and it blesses so many people. And you see people saying like, oh my gosh, this touched me so much or I needed to hear this. And I was kind of looking at myself and it's like, well, I can't think of a moment where I have had a dream or if I've had a vision or a prophetic word or just a message to share in general. And I started thinking that, well, maybe God doesn't see me fit to have those things. Maybe I'm not worthy of having those things. Maybe I'm not good enough. And I started actually kind of second-guessing doing a message at all up here because I was like, what's the point? I had tried to witness people in the past, but I didn't see any changes in people's lives. So I was kind of <laughs> tempted to withdraw myself. I didn't really see how God could use me. But I talked to a friend of mine. I, they called me late at night, <laughs> and we talked about it. And God reminded me that it's not what I can do. It's not what I'm capable of. And I can guarantee every single person that was genuine in saying they had a dream or a vision or a message, they didn't deserve it. No one deserves it. Not a single one of us. No matter what you do, you can't deserve it at all. Because we can never attain unto the goodness that God lays out in his message, the, the standard which is why he died for us. And if he died for us all to just remain in our sin and not try, I mean, why did he die at all? He died for us because we couldn't and we can't, no matter what we do. It's what he can do. And it's not what I want. Sure, I can, I can want for God to do something with me, but if it's not what he has planned for me, he's not going to do it. Because he has something for me, and it might not be what he has for you. He knows what's best. And he knows where I'm going to need to be at the right time. He knows where you're going to be, where you're going to need to be at the right time. And the gifts that he gives you and the opportunities that he gives you are things that he knows I need that person to do it. Not that other person, you. It might not always be what you think it's going to be, but I think you'll be pleasantly surprised to see that 
God knows, and you see that afterward. It's hard to see in the moment. But these mindsets, these mindsets of, oh, I can't be good enough to, to serve God, or, oh, I, I have to be able to do this or that to serve God, they display a lack of belief in God. The object of your faith can be easily transferred to ideologies, contrary to the word of God, and this leads to stumbling. So you may have temptations, and perhaps they torment you often. If you're a normal person, they will. You might say that on too many occasions, you've fallen right back into the hole that you thought you had buried. The same mindset and the same shortcomings I've been there more times than I wish I could say. I've asked the same question I've used as examples. Why, despite the many times I've surrendered these things to you, am I still failing? Well, all the examples circle back to wanting things the way you want them. Still desiring to have what you have, or desiring for a way that isn't the right way. Maybe you're like Lot's wife, running from the sin that tempts you, Yet looking back at it, wondering, well, why did you have to take me from that? Maybe you're even like Lot, bargaining and lingering despite a clear command in hopes that maybe God will say, all right, go ahead. Even if this command is clear. But that command won't always remain so clear if you keep waiting. The more you sit in your indecisiveness, the louder the devil's voice gets and the quieter God's gets. Satan attacks within and without, and he always has things tailored to you. So because of this, we as Christians should check our spiritual inventory daily, meaning that we have to ask ourselves if we're on the right track often. 2 John 8.8 says, Look to yourselves, that we lose not the things which we have wrought, the things we receive a full reward. So let's begin, or I suppose end, with some questions of self-evaluation. What have you toyed with? What are you not willing to surrender quite yet? These things which you have given to God, but they still bother you, have you really laid them down? If not, what's getting in the way of you and God? I have a song, and I suppose, is that mic on? Is that mic over there on? Okay, cool. As I sing this song, um, I encourage you to pray about maybe the things that are on your own heart. If you want to, I mean, it's not really normal for a Wednesday service, but if you have something that maybe you want to give to God, you can come down to the altar and bring it down if you feel touched to do so. If not, that's fine, though, because I know that, that this message helped me, and I really pray that it helped maybe one of you as well. Abraham prayed for 
the day God would give him a son Blessed Isaac was his name The greatest gift he'd ever known Then came the day who would have dreamed God would say You gotta give him to me It's on this mountain You will prove It's not your Isaac That he wants He wants you When I lay my Isaac down with a broken heart, but my father's proud. It's on this mountain where he lay. I found that it wasn't him God wanted, it was me. Now most of us I dare to say Have an Isaac in God's way It's on this altar He will prove It's you and Isaac Or it's me and you When I The broken heart, but my father's proud. It's on this altar where he lay. I found that it wasn't him God wanted, it was me. When I lay my Isaac down with a broken heart. It's on this altar where he lay I found that it wasn't him God wanted me I found that it wasn't him God wanted me Thank you very much for your attentiveness. This uh, scripture was kind of going through my uh, mind. I've heard uh, several messages on it uh, over the years. And it says in uh, Luke 13, and when they, one of them, one of the disciples said to Jesus as they were walking along the way, Lord, are there few that will be saved? And he said unto them, Strive to enter in at the straight gate, for many, I say unto you, will seek to enter in, and shall not be able. 
You know, it's good to see a young woman striving <laughs> to enter into the straight gate, a young person striving to enter into the straight gate these days. And that word strive in the, in the Greek, it gives us the same word in English, agonize. You know, it, this is not a one-time event, as uh, Kaylin was saying, you know, I... I gave my heart to the Lord. I thought I was doing everything right, but I was still struggling. Why is that? You know, and some people, they think, I'll never have enough, another struggle again. That's the worst thing that any preacher could ever tell somebody, that you just give it all to Jesus, you'll never have another struggle again. No, that's not the way it's going to be. You're going to have to strive. So I'm thankful for the message, the beautiful song there. Um, you know, and, and we need more of our young people to be striving. We need more of our middle-aged and older people to be striving as well for that straight gate. And she mentioned there, uh, the Word of God. How are we going to know? Uh, you know, I haven't been given a, uh, a vision. I haven't been given dreams and, and these things. You know, one time I, I was in a similar situation, and, you know, I said just... Lord, why, you know, you haven't spoken to me. Why, why am I not hearing any, anything? As clear as a bell, I heard the Holy Spirit say, I did speak to you. I wrote a whole book to you. <laughs> Would you get it out and read it? And I was going through a rough time. And at that time, I'd just gotten saved. And I read through the book of Hebrews in one sitting, you know, a couple times actually that, that evening. And I tell you, it, it terrified me and it excited me. It, you know, I heard the Holy Spirit speaking through that book, uh, urging me on, urging me on to strive. And we're going to have to strive each and every day. And how, how are we going to know what the Lord says? We don't have to wait for dreams and visions and things like that. People, we have it in the book. He wrote it down for us. And... Be careful, because some of those people that have those dreams and visions, and they write all kinds of books and everything about it. And uh, I know one of the books that uh, people frequently like to talk about is The Shack and just how wonderful that book is. But it has so many things in it that are against the Word of God. The Holy Spirit will never speak a word against what the Bible says. So everything that we hear, every vision that we uh, have or we hear somebody have, we need to be measuring it up to the Word of God. And if it doesn't measure up, then we need to be moving along, <laughs> holding fast to the Word of God. I really thank uh, Sister Kaylin for that message tonight. Um, and just keep striving on. All of you guys keep striving. That's what we've been called to do. Just thankful for our young people. I'm thankful for uh, Sister Mary and Brother Chad and all the work that they do with our youth. Uh, so let's go ahead and pray and, and be dismissed. Heavenly Father, we just do thank you this evening for the message. Uh, Lord, we just pray that you would help each and every one of us to measure up to your word and to uh, listen to what you have spoken to us, Lord, to strive for that straight and straight gate, that narrow way, Father, to walk it faithfully, 
Lord, uh, in the hopes that others will uh, see and we will be able to be a light to others, Lord, as we walk along this pilgrim way, Father. God, I just pray that you would strengthen us, lead us, guide us along the way. Be with our young people, Lord. We know that they face so many struggles and trials in life, Lord, and uh, we know that this is not always an easy time to grow up in, but Lord, we also know that you uh, had them come into the world for such a time as this, Lord. We know that you uh, have not left them in this world unprepared and unable to uh, face the dangers that are out there, but Lord, uh, you have prepared them. You will take care of each and every one of them that will give their heart, their life, and put their faith in you, Father. God, we just uh, pray for your blessings upon our youth. And God, we are thankful for this message, and we ask these things in Jesus' name.